Welcome to Alco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice and the supporting sponsor of Alco Farm, the Bill Gadd College of Pharmacy. Uh, it is uh, St. Patrick's Day 2021, and I will spare you uh, my Irish uh, accent that I try to do. Uh, happy St. Patrick's Day. Uh, this will come out uh, the day after, so happy March 18th. A uh, little bit to talk about this week. Uh, we're going to start with the, the newest uh, drug approved, um, which is uh, tivo, uh, tivozenib, uh, tivozenib uh, which was FDA approved on March uh, 10th for relapsed refractory metastatic renal cell carcinoma uh, after two lines of treatment, so in the third uh, line uh, setting. So uh, tivozenib, uh, tivozenib, uh, it begins with TIVO, which reminds me of TiVo, uh, which was the first DVR, came out in 1999. So it's only 20 years ago, and this was like radically new technology in 1999 that you could get this device, like a cable box, and it could pause live television, right? So you could pause the March Madness game if you had TiVo and go back and go to the fridge to get, uh, to get a Guinness, come back. Uh, unpause the game and, and watch it like it were live. This was revolutionary nighttime. It was crazy. It was a novelty. No one did. This was like, oh man, this is expensive. Nobody, nobody's going to be able to get this. Uh, but it seemed really cool. That was only twenty some years ago. And I, yeah, twenty one years seems really old if you're twenty. Seems really long if you're twenty four. But in the grand history of time, it's not that long. And think how quickly technology has changed just in our TV viewing habits that most people don't even have. Uh, a lot of people don't even have cable anymore, and uh, DVR, digital video recording, is just commonplace and expected in anything that we are viewing. So uh, TiVo uh, kind of started this DVR revolution. Uh, so wh when I see uh, Tavazinib beginning with the same four letters, TIVO, I think of how much has changed in the treatment of metastatic renal cell carcinoma. So if we go back to 2005, December, that's when serafinib was approved for metastatic renal cell carcinoma. In January 2006, uh, sunitib was approved. So in 15 years, how we treat metastatic renal cell carcinoma has drastically changed. When the TiVo came out, not the TiVo drug, but TiVo, the DVR, in 1999, you know, treatment was interferon, alpha. And maybe if you had a great performance status, you would do high-dose IL-2, uh, and you'd have a few folks that would have a response. But those who did respond, which was not very many, like 15, 10% maybe, they had, a, they had a durable response. It was a good response. It kind of set the stage for thinking immunotherapy and the immune system may be really important for diseases like renal cell carcinoma. Uh, so anyway, fast forward now to uh, uh, tavozinib, which is an old new drug. It's been in development for a while. Uh, you can... PubMed Tavozinib and find uh, PubMed articles going back more than a decade. Uh, so a little history here before we talk about TiVo3, which was the, the pivotal study that got Tavozinib approved. That's TiVo1, which was TiVo, I'm not going to say Tavozinib, I'm going to say TiVo, TiVo versus Serafinib in the first and second line treatment of metastatic renal cell carcinoma. There was a modest benefit in progression-free survival in favor of Tavozinib, 11.9 months versus 9.1 with a p-value that just barely snuck inside 0.05. Now, the median overall survival numbers were 28.8 with TiVo uh, versus 29.3 with serafinib, so a slight trend in favor of serafinib. Uh, this did not get an FDA approval in the first-line setting because of this uh, comparison. There was PFS benefit. Um, it was small, but it was there, statistically significant. No OS benefit. In fact, maybe a trend of poor OS. Uh, with the experimental arm uh, tavozinib, 
Uh, now, at the time, people thought that the majority of patients on serafinib went on to subsequent therapy, 63%, and only 13% on tavozinib did, and that was maybe why uh, there was a discordance between the PFS and OF. OS, although the differences are small in both cases. Uh, EMA, so the European version of the FDA, they okayed this, uh, apparently. FDA did not. Surprisingly, the FDA said no. This was a while ago. So that was TiVo 1. So that's like Tivozinib first line. There's no TiVo 2. Then there's TiVo 3, which is Devozinib versus Serafinib in patients who had either failed two or more lines of treatment. So this is third, fourth line treatment. This was presented at ASCO's GU conference in 2020 and published in Lancet in 2020. Uh, so patients were randomized to either Tavozinib or Serafinib, uh, and they were stratified by their prior treatment, which is really important. So uh, they were equal numbers of patients in both arms who either went TKI, TKI, then their third-line treatment, or TKI plus TKI followed by immune checkpoint inhibitor, then third-line treatment, or TKI plus something else, then third-line treatment. Don't know what the something else would have been. Uh, 175 patients in each arm, medium PFS. These numbers are really tiny, but remember this was a third and fourth line setting, so you wouldn't expect much benefit here uh, as far as progression-free survival. 5.6 months with tavozinib versus 3.9 with serafinib. That's a hazard ratio of 0.73, 95% confidential, 0.56 to 0.95. All right, so that was the primary endpoint uh, that was met. The median OS, kind of the same trend we saw before. Uh, median OS with tavozinib was 16.4 months. Uh, median OS with serafinib was 19.7 months. Uh, hazard ratio of 0.97, call it one, no difference, uh, with a 95% confidence interval from 0.75 to 1.24, uh, which makes those median OS values look skewed, and they are skewed. If you look at the Kapp-Meyer curve, they perfectly overlap. It's just a, an artifact of you know, the arbitrary median being the 50% where the curves are the widest. No difference in overall survival whatsoever. As far as people who went on to subsequent therapy, so like fourth or fifth line treatment, 40% with TiVo versus 47% with serafinib. So from an efficacy standpoint, you see modest PFS benefit, uh, no OS benefit. Um, maybe tavozinib had more PFS benefit in favorable risk than an intermediate and poor kind of looks that way. There's that trend, but the N is too small in either of those subgroups to make much out of it. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, I don't know what, what, how is this drug going to be used, right? So, um, you know, nowadays you're either going to get sunitinib if you're favorable risk or probably presopinib, better tolerated than sunitinib in first line. Uh, if you're intermediate or poor risk, you'll get an immune checkpoint inhibitor plus a VEGF TKI. And then after that, probably a you know, the alternate treatment, a different TKI or different immune checkpoint inhibitor. If you just got sunitinib in the first round, maybe mTOR inhibitors, which have uh, been disappointing uh, in every study uh, lately. Uh, so is tavozinib going to be better than, uh, I'll get cabozantinib before this too, hopefully. I mean, if somebody gets sunitinib and then they get nivolumab, my next drug would be cabozantinib probably versus tavozinib. Uh, I mean, if you look at kind of how this is as a TKI, it's not really that exciting. You know, it some of the publications, some of the review articles say it's highly selective for VEGF 1, 2, and 3. It's not as highly selective as Ixitinib. Um, doesn't, doesn't inhibit like the axle kinase like cabozantinib does. Uh, so really not all that exciting uh, as a, you know, it's not like a better TKI or anything like that. Um, the dose is 100, or sorry, 1.34 milligrams of uh, tavozinib, which is 1.5 of tavozinib hydrochloride. That's going to be confusing for folks. Taken daily by mouth for 21 days, 
then seven days off, so 28-day cycles. A half-life is four and a half days, long half-life. It's got all the VEGF warnings like impaired wound healing and hemorrhage and thermobolic events and uh, heart failure. So, you know, it's got all, all those sort of uh, concerns as well. Interestingly, it's a it's a three or four substrate, but there are not noticeable drug interactions when it's been studied with rifampin and ketoconazole. Uh, so it may have something to do with very high protein binding, probably a low extraction drug if you think back to your clinical PK. Um, there, there are dose reductions for moderate hepatic impairment. Um, there's more fatigue compared to serafinib, 67% fatigue, more hypertension, 44% versus like 30% more nausea. Uh, more dysphonia, 27%. So one in four had some voice changes. Uh, hypothyroidism, 24% more than serafinib. Serafinib, uh, you see the RAF in there. RAF inhibitor, more skin toxicity. So rash, 52% with serafinib, hand foot syndrome, 41% with serafinib versus just 16% with TiVo. So it's a new drug, so we ought to be aware of it. Uh, it'll be used, uh, not all that exciting, but does appear to be fairly clean from a drug interaction standpoint, uh, at least at this point. Okay, so that's tavozanib. Uh, the next update is uh, a disappointing update. It's a negative study, but it was a good study to do, so I think it's worth pointing out, and that is Invigor uh, 010, or Invigor 10, which was published on the 12th of March in Lance Oncology. And this is looking at adjuvant atizolizumab uh, for, uh, for treatment of muscle-invasive bladder cancer. So these were 800 patients with uh, muscle-invasive bladder cancer, like 93% of them. 7% had an upper uh, uh, urotract cancer uh, who had cystectomy. So they had, they had surgery, right? Uh, or whatever surgery that they would do for an upper, uh, an upper ureter cancer, right? So after surgery, and they were looking at, okay, so we do the surgery. Uh, there's no role for adjuvant treatment right now. We know the way that we treat muscle-invasive bladder cancer is cisplatin-based neoadjuvant chemo. There's no role we know of for carboplatin-based treatment in the neoadjuvant setting, and we don't have any defined role for adjuvant treatment. So these folks should get neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemo uh, and then surgery, remove, uh, remove the bladder. All right, now about half the patients in the study actually had neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemo uh, because the other half were not candidates, which is probably real world. Not everyone's going to be candidates for, for cisplatin. These are older patients. All of them were 60 years or older. Uh, they had to have a GFR of, of uh, above 60 uh, to get cisplatin, ECOG 01, and have, uh, you know, they had to have good hearing as well, which will knock out some elderly folks if you, if you do that. So 400 got atizolizumab, 400 got observation. The primary endpoint was median disease-free survival. If it's going to come back, it's going to come back in like two or three years, right? So the median disease-free survival was 19.4 months in the atizolizumab arm versus 16.6 months in observation. Uh, that's a hazard ratio of 0.93, competence interval 0.76 to 1.12. Uh, the, uh, the statistical analysis here was based off of uh, an expected or hopeful hazard ratio of 0.75. The hazard ratio we see is 0.93. So could atizolizumab be 7% better at preventing disease-free uh, survival or recurrence? It could be. It's just not powered to detect that small of a difference. It's powered to detect a 25% improvement in disease-free survival. It didn't do that. So if atizolizumab is helpful for these patients, it's going to be a, a minimal impact, uh, and certainly not a. And 25% is a reasonable. That's a reasonable goal here. That'd be clinically significant. So uh, doesn't appear to be any benefit here for atizolizumab. It's a first immune checkpoint number to be studied in the adjuvant setting for bladder cancer. It's a good question to ask. Uh, there's maybe an OS trend in favor of atizolizumab. Too soon to see if that's anything or just noise. 
so, you know, it's a good question to ask. And I'm telling you, these Kathamire curves for DFS, when you, you see that median DFS, it, it looks like maybe there's a three-month improvement in median disease-free survival in favor of Atizo, Lizalab. It, it looks that way. You see that on the DFS. But when you see the rest of the Kappa-Meyer curve for disease-free survival, they're perfect overlap for 18 months. So if the picture tells the story, the story looks like a few patients uh, are preventing a relapse. But then by a year and a half, everyone who's going to relapse looks like they have relapsed. Uh, and if everyone who's going to relapse has relapsed, that means we're probably not curing any people, unfortunately, which would be a great thing to do in the adjuvant setting. And we think immunotherapy like immune checkpoint numbers, would work best with very low disease state. That'd be following chemo and surgery. So, it, you know, uh, scientifically, it's a really sound design and a good uh, good initiative to ask this question and study it. It's unfortunate we didn't meet that. Uh, it wasn't, we didn't, but it's unfortunate that uh, there was no benefit found. All right, uh, next update, last kind of significant update here, is I've been waiting for something like this. Uh, with COVID vaccinations going on, we know people on chemo were excluded from, from uh, the COVID vaccine study, so, but we're giving them to them to these patients because they're, the they're very high risk for, for severe COVID disease. So I'm wondering what, what was the benefit of these folks? Uh, you know, you would assume it's reduced benefit. How much reduced, we don't know. So this was uh, something somebody t tweeted out a couple days ago. Uh, I found it and retweeted it. Uh, at PharmDeepNip on Twitter. Uh, so March 11th, King's College London on their website updated something. Uh, and this is a, an analysis of the SOAP trial, S-O-A-P. Uh, and apparently it was uploaded to the Med Archive, that's M-E-D-R-X-I-V, that preprint server where people dump articles before, like while they're in peer review. I couldn't find it. The search function there is like searching the FDA for something. I couldn't find it, what it, I couldn't find it at all. I searched by the name, I searched by keywords. I searched by the author. I searched by author's names that I, I couldn't pronounce, which I thought would be rare. Couldn't find anything at all, at all <laughs> about this study on there. So I assume it's a real study. So take that with a caveat. It's a press release. It is from uh, from King's College London, which makes more sense. Uh, maybe a little bit more uh, altruistic motive than, say, a pharmaceutical company press release. So anyway, it was small. It's 150 patients with cancer and then 50-some healthy controls. And they're looking at antibody response after the Pfizer vaccine. And so what they found is they gave the folks the Pfizer vaccine. Three weeks later, when they would have come back for their second dose, they measured uh, antibody levels and see if they had seroconverted. The healthy people had 97% they had seroconverted, had an antibody response. 39% of people with solid tumors had an antibody response. Only 13% of people with hematologic tumors. Now, at some point during this study, apparently NHS or the, the government in the United Kingdom said instead of doing the Pfizer vaccine every three weeks the way it was studied, they're going to do it every 12 weeks, which is a whole ball of wax I'm not going to get into. But this provided an opportunity to look at what is the difference in antibody response if you give the, the vaccine every three weeks versus if you give it every 12 weeks. So for the folks who had... Uh, at every 12 week or every three weeks, the antibody responses uh, were better than if you ate every every 12 weeks, which kind of makes sense. Um, now, in the solid tumor folks, uh, those who did get the vaccine every three weeks for their two doses, uh, they had a 95% antibody response, which is pretty good, right? It's almost 100. So that's reassuring. Uh, if they didn't get that dose within um, three weeks and got it 12 weeks later, the antibody response was 43% for solid tumors, 8% for hematologic malignancies, and 100% for patients without cancer, the healthy controls. Now, 
there are tons of caveats. You can't take anything from this. This this is just priming us. I'm proud to prime you for what to look for in other studies uh, coming out that, that are not just a convenient sample, perhaps, but are, are, are scientifically done to, to really answer the question of, of how good are the vaccines and patients receiving chemotherapy. I don't even know that these people got chemo. It doesn't say that they got chemo. I don't. I want to know what kind of diseases they had. I want to know what their treatment was. I want to know where they were in the treatment. They got the vaccine. Was it day one of AC? Was it day 10 of AC? Cycle three? Or was it after they finished AC? Those are the things that I'm looking for for this. Although by the time we get that information, maybe this pandemic will be behind us. I'm hopeful for that. Okay, so that's just something to be on the lookout for. Don't make any... That should not change your thinking on, on giving uh, COVID vaccines to patients with cancer, but that is just information to keep track of and be looking for, to be on the lookout for. That's all I'm saying. All right, last thing I'll say, it's been about a month since the movie Nomadland came out, and if you don't want to hear a tiny, tiny spoiler about like a tier three character, maybe tier four character, see you next week. Uh, I'll just say there's a character in Nomadland. There's a tier one character. There's a tier two character. There are a couple tier three characters tier three characters and the rest are tier four in my opinion like the t3b character has a cancer diagnosis and a cancer kind of story arc all i'm gonna say is that story arc makes a lot more sense a lot more sense if you add the word non n-o-n add the word non when you hear this person's cancer diagnosis and it'll make perfect it'll make complete sense i think there was a a non was cut from the script that should have been in the script that's all i'm saying all right thank you for listening to onco farm uh, feel free to follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNip. Uh, follow the podcast uh, on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.